Thank you for joining me, friends. That is a terrible intro as well. I am still working on making a better intro, and I really hope you all can just hold with me here and continue to just skip past this part and move on to the rest of what I have to say, because at least I hope that stuff is moderately more interesting, or at least, well, actually, I hope the other stuff I say is a lot more interesting, and that's why you keep coming back, and not just because these are super short and you can listen to them between getting your Starbucks coffee and driving down the road to work, or whatever it ends up being. Uh, I assume that's the kind of commute people have. I have a longer commute, so I don't, you know, I have a bit of a, of a drive. Well, it's, it's not too terrible. It's about the 30-minute drive if I take the interstate and, um, and the traffic is clear. But now for those of you with the long drives, I, I salute you. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I used to drive very far every day. And I mean, granted, that was almost probably 15 years ago, but it left such an indelible mark on me that I'm like, I do not want to have a long commute. <laughs> you know, I was actually looking for a job at one point. I live out in the western suburbs of Chicago and I had a, a a pretty decent job offer in the city, but it was like, you'd have to travel the city every day. There was no remote work. This was pre COVID and you'd have to travel in the city every day. And you'd have to, you know, I would have had to probably take a train cause we were, you know, we're a one car family and I would have had to, you know, pay for train expenses. And they didn't really give you like a, a stipend for train tickets and stuff. And I was just like, this seems awful. And then we were, you know, we're, we're just, yeah, we just had our, our baby girl. And I was like, you know, I don't want to travel for an hour to the city every day there and then an hour to the city every day back and miss all that time with my little girl. So anyways, we're not really talking about commutes. We're talking about uh, Andac Game Labs and what it means to make games as an independent uh, publisher. So. The reason or the, th the thing the reason why I indicate or I call us an independent publisher is because we are or dudes printing, publishing and releasing games, our own games. And we're not like going through a larger publisher or a distribution hub or anything like that. Like we don't we don't sell our games to, you know, Alliance, for example, <clears throat> and then have them go out into the store. We have to direct connect with the game stores or the end users like hopefully yourself or maybe if you're a game store person then you listening we should get in contact with us and check out our games we'll send you a free box of uh, demos of our games anyways the point is uh that it's it's something that we are doing on the side it's something that we're doing because we love board games we love making board games and we we can't unfortunately make it our day job. We have a lot of like responsibilities and existing uh, you know work and history and experience. Like for example, I I've spent my entire career being either you know a programmer or a designer uh, or doing marketing. And it's hard for me then to say, okay, I'm just going to pick up all that you know earned experience and earned time and say. I am going to go off on my own and support my family by just doing this for board games because, you know, that's just, it's, it's hard. And, and I really respect people who, when they can do it. And when I hear people are like, yeah, I quit my job and I started this, 
you know, barbecue joint or I quit my job and I made a new soccer ball or whatever. I'm always like, that's incredible. You know, you, you are the American entrepreneur spirit spirit. I am the person who keeps my day job and then does this in my free time because I desperately want to create games and share them. But I uh, like the security of, you know, working for a, a larger company. <laughs> so, and you know, that's, that's kind of true for all of us. I mean, I would love to be able to say, yes, we can support us. You know, we've got something and, and maybe that's what we're building towards. I really don't know. I don't know where Andac will go. I know that uh, for the time I have, and as long as I'm here, I want to make as many games as I can and make them really good and, and get them out there and, and, you know, have people all over the world playing our games. That to me would be the ideal situation. And um, maybe someday, you know, well, we don't know where it's going, though. Anyways, we're not talking about my five year future career plans. We're talking about what it means to be an independent publisher. (laughs) So that is the thing I want to talk about. That is being an independent, independent publisher in relation to kickstarting our product, because I, you know, there is GameFound and there's Kickstarter and all these companies. And the thing is, is that you keep seeing these very large companies, very large game companies. And I'm not going to name any of them because I'm not here to, you know, uh, hurl stones uh, for I am not without sin. Uh, but you see these large companies going to Kickstarter when they have established fandoms, they have established bases and they launch these games on Kickstarter. And, you know, of course, they're like, oh, funded in, you know, negative 42 seconds. We were funded before we even went live. You know, it's 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 and you see it and it is kind of disheartening, especially, you know, I ran my campaign and I think I only reached my, you know, three thousand dollar funding goal. Oh, I think it was like day 28 out of 30 or something like that. I mean, I was very close to thinking I wasn't getting it funded. And that's, you know, that can be, that's kind of a hard pill to swallow when you, when you think that's coming. And I think the interesting thing about this is that it's like, I feel like the Kickstarter platform is being misused. You're getting these large companies who have these built-in fan bases, who have, you know, money and whatnot and, and investments. And they're basically saying, please come and pre-buy this game so I know how much to produce. And then your local game store won't get to sell the game because you bought it on Kickstarter with a bunch of Kickstarter exclusives. And... I say that as having been a, as a person who has kickstarted games and a person who's owned a game store. And it's like this weird dichotomy of like two contradictory things. You're like, okay, well I understand using Kickstarter to launch games. Cause that's what we need. We never could have done stellar empire without Kickstarter. We, it was just too, well, no, that's not true. I can say confidently we never would have been able to do uh, Stellar Empire Light Racer without Kickstarter because we need to buy larger boxes, stand-up boxes. We need to buy uh, um, pieces of acrylic that are going to get laser cut if we hit that stretch goal, which I hope we hit that stretch goal because the acrylic looks so amazing. Anyways, those costs are beyond what the four of us can really arguably put up to to produce this game. And and especially without being able to, you know, have the quantities of like 20, 30, 40, hundred thousand, which, you know, we, we will not be producing that many copies of this game. We just cannot as an independent publisher, we're going to produce a few hundred 
And then if we get enough sales from that, we'll be able to produce a few hundred more. And now, granted, and if anyone's done production, they know that's the most expensive way to do it. You know, it's, it's always better to buy as much bulk as you can, but it's all about building what we can with the limited cash flow that we have. So, uh, let's see. That is why we're going to Kickstarter. Now, as a game store owner, I can talk about, and this has nothing to do with being an independent, pu- independent publisher, so please bear with me on this quick William Shakespeare style aside. But it was always hard owning a game store having a game come up on Kickstarter or something and being like, Oh, I'd love to get the retail version of this pledge if they offered one. And a lot of places didn't, but I know that the vast majority of the people coming to my store are going to be backing it on Kickstarter. And that's not even necessarily true, but some of the more popular games, you're like, Oh, it's going to be hard to bring in this many games at this much quality or this much cost. Knowing that, especially if there wasn't a Kickstarter retail tier, knowing that people are going to have already bought it and then they're not going to want, or they're going to have bought it and gotten the Kickstarter exclusives, which the store doesn't necessarily always get. So that was just, uh, that was difficult. Anyways, aside, aside, uh, <laughs> that's, oh, the English language. I don't even know if that is whatever. Point being that as an independent publisher, what we need to do and what we need to produce is these short run, you know, really grab you, capture you kind of games, something that's fun for people to play. They want to share and tell other people to pick up. Then you have to go find us online and order, but then we can produce enough that we're able then to produce more or produce other games or things like that. And that's where things like, you know, when we did the monster bash, um second edition like that was a huge like back and forth for us i'm like should we do it should we not do it should we do it should we not do it because like it was a pretty major change we we added negative numbers to most of the cards so that you could use them either way in the mathematical situations but that was a big change and it was like do we release this as a different game is there enough differentiation between it um but it was like no i we can't release the same game as a different game so soon after releasing although it really isn't that soon we were definitely five years out on it but it was like such a major change but we had taken a lot of feedback and it was going to be a cost to go in and and print new boxes and print new styles of boxes and print new cards and do all that stuff but it was like it was worth it because the game was so much better for it. And we wanted to make sure the game was so much better for it because we need the fans to really take to the game and then tell their friends about it and buy it. And you guys know how fandom works. So I'm not telling you anything new, but the point is, is that in order to make the game and to do the game, we needed to take into consideration the cost and possible loss of hype and fandom for re-releasing the same game. I mean, we've had that same issue with wilderness dice. We've reworked wilderness dice numerous times because of the loss of suppliers and things like that. And it has cost us the, the popularity of wilderness dice has almost entirely died off. And we, we don't get a lot of people being like, Oh, I want to pick up these extra copies or I want to pick up these extra styles or whatever. And, and I really think that's because we've been forced to change it so many times from, you know, the original wilderness dice that we needed to adapt it a little bit to handle some things that came up in the rules and the way that we were doing the packaging and we lost our boxes. So then we had to drop the dice out of it. And it was the wilderness dice, bring your own dice edition. And then we released those. And then it was like, 
you know, when we released new animals and things that we were really hoping was to draw people in, but then it was like big, like, Oh, there's no dice in it. And it's called a dice game. So that's silly, you know? And so, so, and now we're talking about, well, how do we move, you know, essentially how do we move the rest of the stock we have? That's one thing. And then it's like, how do we take this, this thing we developed that does have a lot of, you know, ownership and things behind it and how do we push it forward? How do we get more people interested in it? And I think what we determined was, well, let's build something that we can actually ship with dice. Uh, and that's where we go back to like the, the supplier print play games. They have a box that we actually use for landing party that can fit cards and dice in it. So I said, okay, let's rework the game. So it's a four dice game. So it only takes four dice. So we can utilize that box instead of having to like order custom boxes uh, and sell the game as cards and dice. And so we did. We we went back to the drawing board. We've reworked it. We're actually running through a bunch of playtesting right now. Uh, if, if you have a copy of Wilderness Dice and you want to try out Wilderness Dice Battles, uh, let me know. Hit me up on Substack at um, uh, either Andac Game Labs or yeah, hit me up at the Andac Game Labs here and I'll get you a PDF of the new rules. But the idea is, is that we're building this new version. Well, we're also, you know, getting ready to launch this Kickstarter crazy. Um, and we're going to do that to try to hang on to the IP of wilderness dice and not just bury it. Like we had to with Defcon dice. Um, I realized that I'm completely off talking about plans for like this, what I was supposed to be talking about in independent publisher. So although I did talk about independent publishing, there's just not a whole much bunch more for me to say at this point uh, about what it means to be an independent publisher, because really what it means, and I guess I can, uh, you know, sum it up here. It's like the great princess bride line. You know, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. Uh, being an independent publisher means putting our own finances on the line with this kind of thing and having to produce small runs. And ultimately we're learning it's having to fight making changes between those runs. And that's, I think what I'm getting to with some of that information about, uh, or what I was talking about with monster bash and things like that. We, you know, when we produce, you know, 150 or 250 games at a time, there's this, there's this, uh, feeling like you should take the uh take the feedback you've received from those 250 and make a modification before you print your next 250 but then you've introduced a separation or a difference or a change in your game in your base game and we actually did that with art major and that was i think kind of a huge problem there was this first edition and second edition that had the same looking box uh, and initially we didn't even like print second edition on the new box or we even like cross crossed a few of the boxes by accident, but we had received some feedback from the original art major that it was hard to identify the uh, gallery pairs. So I went in and I named every gallery and did all that stuff. And then it was like, Oh, so now we've got two entirely different versions of art major out there in the wild. And not entirely different. In fact, the only thing that was different was the painting cards, but we have these two different versions of art major out there in the wild. So when we have people ask us, you know, sometimes it's like, well, what version do you have? Do we know? And we didn't, we weren't marking the versions in any meaningful way back then. 
you know, now we've started this thing where we've taken our product codes and we've done dash one, dash two, dash three, and that kind of thing. And um, I've actually started just recently, even with a little bit more recent change is I started actually printing run codes on the boxes as well. So if someone does have an issue or has a question or something, I can take a look and say, okay, what's the run code on your box? And then I can, you know, help them out or assist them from there. But those are the kind of things that like you have to realize and take into consideration when you are publishing independently, because there is so much about it that is like, it's it's everything that you are and it's so personal to you and not that it isn't personal for people that like you know work at like fantasy flight games or whatever like when someone dogs on or has a problem with one of their games i'm sure the designers feel personal but there's like we are intrinsically this game or we are intrinsically these games because we are and games and these are our babies that we're doing it's our hobby and our free time so we like we really get def- like not defensive, but we get like, we want to make sure they're good. We want to make sure they can sell and we want to make sure people like them. And we have to fight the, uh, the amateur desire to constantly change or whatever and treat it more like a, a company and say, okay, this is a product as it stands. If we need to release a new product, we need to change the product or change its identifier in a certain way. I mean, this was the whole thing too, where hot, Dog, we're at 17 minutes. Okay, so I will talk about um, iteration and things like that in another episode. But for today, let's just summarize and say that there is a lot to be said about trying to run your own game studio or produce your own games. And it's not easy. And my office is filled with boxes full of, you know, packs of cards waiting to be stuffed in boxes, a shrink wrap machine and a box with some leftover promotional stuff from our Kickstarter. So like it's, it's wild. Uh, but I would encourage anyone who wants to do it to do it because if that's your hobby and that's your love, it's worth having a crazy office over it. And if you want to work with us on publishing a game, go ahead and give us a call or a hit up on the, the substance stack i keep saying that i don't know is substack like twitter can people message me on it let me know because i don't know and rob will be the one who will answer you because he's our substack guy i've just kind of dropped in here kind of like the um the ghosts from the uh the spooky cereal my kids call it the spooky cereal the the marshmallow and chocolate one my wife loves it whatever I never got to eat it growing up, so I don't know what its name is. Marshmallow and chocolate spooky cereal. I'm like the ghosts that just kind of pop up in your mouth as you're eating. It's like, oh, there's a marshmallow ghost in there. That's me when it comes to Substack. Rob's the chocolate, the, the crunchy chocolate parts that does like the consistent writing and takes care of all that stuff. So I will catch you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.